0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: And look, it wouldn't be an addition of the program without talking about one festival or another, because let's face it, <laughs> Melbourne does love a good festival. The Melbourne Cabaret Festival is the next one off the rank. Yes, I know the Jazz Festival is already uh, already on and happening, but let's talk cabaret. I'm joined in the studio by Mike McLeish, the artistic director of this year's Melbourne Cabaret Festival. Mike, how are you going? Very well, Richard. Top of the morning. Lovely to see you. Last time I saw you, uh, you were on stage, hoofing it up and singing a little bit. So, uh, Oh, yeah, of course. Good old Georgie girl. Yeah, my day job. Yeah. yeah. So h- tell me how you balance being a performer mm. and being artistic director of a festival because does it mean that when you're... Off stage, uh, before a matinee or before a performance, that you're madly checking emails and calling venues, and, and is it that sort of juggling act?
0: That's exactly what it means. Actually, I did almost miss a couple of calls to stage during, particularly during the Melbourne season when we were still in the thick of programming the Cabaret Festival, um, because I, I really did feel like every waking moment I had to had to really just keep attacking my inbox, which had never felt so assaulted. Um, so yeah, it, it was a balancing act. But, I mean, it worked out well because it meant that I could focus on the Cabaret Festival during daytime and then uh, go and do my job at night. So, it, 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 logistically, it worked out quite well.
1: Now, you've performed in the Melbourne Cabaret Festival in the I past have. as well. So, you know the festival, I guess, inside and out now from multiple perspectives. Why is it such a significant festival for Melbourne, particularly in winter?
0: Well, I think the fact that, uh, I mean, now that we're in our, uh, in our seventh year, I think we're, we're finally getting to the stage where... Where Melbourneites are, are, are recognizing that it exists, that it's there. Um, it's we've been around for long enough, and every year it's it's grown exponentially. It's been getting bigger and better every single year um, through sales and the quality of acts. And uh, and this year, I really feel like uh, there's a great sense of consolidation. You know, there's we've got this uh, in, uh, an incredible lineup, uh, a combination of really fantastic, you know, local talent. Um, uh, and some, some really fantastic internationals uh, which is something that uh, with a festival that's as, as still as small as ours and as young as ours and as unfunded as ours, it's, it's hard to secure those sorts of acts. So I think the fact that um, that Melbourne Cabaret Festival is now being recognised as a destination for international artists is a real testament to the work that David Reed and Neville Sice have done in the past and to what we've created for this year's festival.
1: So the festival itself is running from next week, Tuesday the 14th uh, until Sunday the 26th 6th of June, mm. so for you I guess this is the calm before the storm before it all explodes, <laughs> but I'm guessing yes. there's still a lot of work to do
0: there is a bit, I mean, where, you know, we've got a big opening gala coming up on the 14th, uh, which is a love machine over the road from, from Chapel off Chapel, where we've created our new festival hub, uh, which we've got for the first year, which is fantastic because uh, a festival just needs a hub. Um, so there's a lot of planning in the lead-up to that. We've got Casey Bonetto leading the house band. Um, you know, a, a couple of the acts are, are utilising the blistering house band that we've got. And uh, so there's a lot of logistical stuff. And then, of course, there's, there's tech rehearsals um, in the lead-up to, to everyone opening their shows in week one. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot still going on.
1: Let's take a step back for a moment. Why do you like cabaret? What is it about the art form itself that so engages and delights you that you've both performed it and are now programming, what, over 40 acts of this year's Melbourne Cabaret Festival?
0: Yes. Well, look, I mean, the, obviously the perennial question surrounding cabaret is what the hell is it? Um, and I think the fact that it's an art form that is so difficult to define, which is what makes it appealing, because really it can be anything, in my opinion, often it can come down to context. I've seen music musicals at cabaret festivals. I've been in musicals at cabaret festivals. I've seen bands at cabaret festivals. Um, Really, once you put it under the banner of cabaret, that's that's what it is. And I mean, I think from a performer's point of view, it gives performers an opportunity to sort of flex their muscles and spread their wings in ways that they might not get to within their chosen discipline, whether that discipline is in dance or in musical theatre or in, uh, you know, straight uh, straight band music. Um, it gives them the chance to explore something that might be more personal, that might be slightly stranger, that that relies more on the involvement of, of an audience. And that is such a key component of cabaret. And I think the fact that – I think what I really love about great cabarets is, is the, the fact that it's it's very genuine. You know, it, there's – a good cabaret performer has to have this sense of authenticity about them to you know, in order to connect to their audience and they have to have something to say. And if they don't believe in what they're saying, then the, the audience isn't going to buy it. So it goes far beyond just having to – Interpret someone else's work. It's very much about coming from the inside out as a performer, and I think that's what makes it so engaging for artists
1: and for audiences alike. It's clearly connected with the Australian population because the the growth in cabaret festivals around the country and in cabaret generally has been massive to the point where it seems like now every capital city has its own cabaret festival.
0: That's right. Well, it's almost like it started. It started with you know every festival having maybe half a page, a page, a page and a half of, of cabaret. You know, as a subset of their festival. And it's sort of spilled over to the point where it's like, oh god, we better start a bloody cabaret festival just to accommodate all this darn cabaret, which is which is great to see um, because it is yeah it, it cannot be contained. And in Melbourne, uh, you know, as the cultural center of, of this uh, of this of this country, um, it makes perfect sense that that this cabaret festival should be one of the biggest and the best.
1: In terms of uh, programming the festival, to what degree can you then share acts with some of the other cabaret festivals around, such as the Queensland Cabaret Festival, which is on now and finishing on the 12th of June, Adelaide Cabaret Festival and mm. so
0: forth? Um, I mean, to be honest, this year I, I I had to remain fairly blinkered to a degree because I was so <laughs> so new at this and I didn't even know if I was going to be any good at it. So I just made sure that I threw everything I had at, at this festival. I did we did collaborate with the Adelaide Cabaret Festival and that's how we managed to secure some of these great international acts um, and that's something that in, in years to come I think it's a circuit that should be nurtured and developed between all these cabaret festivals because they are they are at similar times. It would be great if there was a little bit more space around them so that the artists themselves, particularly international artists, but, but for local artists as well so that they can look forward to establishing a, a genuine and a decent touring circuit so that they're not just doing their two or three nights in Melbourne or the or their two or three nights in in Adelaide, that they can actually establish a justifiable touring circuit for their show.
1: Let's talk about some of the international acts that you're bringing out for the 2016 Melbourne Cabaret Festival. I have to think twice about what year it is too sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, for example, from the UK, uh, Joe Stilgo.
0: Yeah, Joe Stilgo, who's coming out with his fantastic show called Songs on Film. I mean, Joe is... Uh, An incredibly accomplished jazz pianist He's uh, got such a stunning voice And he's got this remarkable rapport with an audience And from what I know about Joe He discovered He sort of discovered through just playing straight jazz gigs that he he was quite the raconteur and people wanted to hear him speak as much as they wanted to hear him play and sing. And so Songs on Film he'd been a film buff for years and he he, he became fascinated with um with how music served movies very early on in his life. And so he decided to create a show that made that made the music the hero, so it wasn't just something that was serving a movie. That you know, these are this is music, and as we all know, I mean, so many great songs and music that that comes out of film can stand on its own. And so to put on a show where he gets to to showcase, you know, so, some of this music that touched him personally, um, and it's served by these great projections and, and, and visuals that he's got um, as part of the show as well. Um, I, I can't wait to see that one; it's going to be great.
1: Uh, and from Berlin, you've got uh, Otto and
0: Astrid. The best band in the world, you might know them better as Die Punkte or the Red Dots, of course, I mean No Stranger to Our Shores and Otto and Astrid are an unstoppable force, you know, their their punk pop cabaret stylings are uh, renowned the world over and if you haven't seen them uh, a lot of the stuff they've done in Melbourne over the years actually has been north side, so this is one of their first ventures to the south side of the river and it's about bloody time, They they are a force to be reckoned with and they are hilarious
1: and musically brilliant. And speaking of uh, people crossing over to the south side, uh, Yana Alana, again, a, like a Helpman Award winning cabaret artist. Absolutely. Who again, has perhaps tended to perform more on the north side or in the CBD. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How, what risk is there for an artist then if their fan base is on one side of the river and they are crossing the river? Like, surely crossing the river is not that big a thing. I did it this
0: morning to come here. It was great. I got to listen to half an album all the way here. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know if there's a risk. I would like to think that particularly for someone like Yana Alana who has such an established fan base and is... I mean, I mean, honestly, one of the preeminent artists in this country um, that people would. <laughs> wouldn't mind jumping in their car or hopping a train or a tram to come and see her in the main theater at Chapel off Chapel I mean this is a venue that's hosted some of the greatest artists in the world you know th- they've had world class bands in that space and the lighting rig and the sound setup in there is designed to accommodate those sorts of artists and so to have the the opportunity to see someone like Yana Alana and the Piranhas who are a stunning band and see their interpretations of some of some of Yana's favorite tunes Is uh, an opportunity not to be missed. And by the way, it's the only opportunity that Melbourne audiences are going to get to see Yana Alana in Melbourne this year. This is their only Melbourne show this year, so make the trek.
1: And uh, it's also going to be unique in that uh, it's Yana uh, fully dressed rather than naked and painted blue. I know, I know. And performing other people's songs rather than her own. That's
0: right, I I know. So it's... it's, um, it's a big departure from her last show, but I mean that's that's one of the things that defines her as a great artist artist, that she, she will take a sidestep and do something completely different to what she's done last time. And as anyone who knows her and has seen her perform, there you can you can rest assured that whatever she does is gonna be is gonna be top notch.
1: And Mike, you're hosting the opening Gala, I believe. I am. I am. I I can't
0: wait. It's going to be. I mean, with all the emails that have been bouncing back and forth over the last few days, it's it's shaping up to be an absolute cracker. You know, we've got Yana Alana performing. We've got Ash Flanders. We've got Amy G, who's out from New York. Uh, she will be, I think, fresh from the Adelaide Cabaret Festival or just about to go to the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. Either way, she's the most incredible physical comedian, great stand-up, stunning singer. Um, she's toured with La Soiree. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we've got Otto and Astrid performing at the gala as well. Gerald. Queen, local legend Geraldine Queen, who's not only doing her show Fox Ponsing but also doing uh, a live record of her podcast Bang on the Strillers. So it's going to be this amazing sort of live variety night as well, which is going to be which is going to be a fantastic night. So yeah, the um, I I I promised myself that I would just be as much of a facilitator as possible as host. Get on, introduce the acts. Get the hell off. Get out of the way. Surely you get to sing one or two songs yourself, though? No, not singing at all. Really, not singing at all at it's the, the opening gala. It's not going to do it. A waste of your talents Mr McLeish (laughs) (laughs) no it's a waste of everyone's time Richard get the uh, in this in this particular context I I am nothing more than uh, the presenter of the smorgasbord
1: if you'd like more information about the Melbourne Cabaret Festival 2016, jump online, com. Tickets are on sale now. The festival running from Tuesday the 14th until Sunday the 26th of June at the Festival Hub Chapel off Chapel, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran. And also check out the Festival Fringe. Because Absolutely, the, yeah. The Cabaret Festival is now large enough and established enough that it has its own fringe program as well, running at the Butterfly Club.
0: The one and only Butterfly Club.
1: Sounds like it's going to be a fun festival, Mike. I It's going to be great. You're not going to get
0: much sleep. I can't wait for that lack of sleep. It's going to be well justified.
1: Enjoy. Thanks, Richard. My next guests have joined me in the studio to talk to us not only about a new production that's happening at the Alex Theatre in St Kilda, but about a new theatre company as well, Artifact, uh, a new independent theatre company in Melbourne. I'm joined in the studio by Emily O'Brien-Brown, who's directing uh the company's show proof and actor anna burgess welcome to you both
2: thanks richard thanks for having us
1: very great pleasure so let's talk about what it's like to set up a brand new theater company why
2: (laughs) there are so many (laughs) especially with all the arts cuts why and because
1: with arts cuts fraught kind of creative landscape there's already a plethora of independent Mm. companies why create a new one
2: Because there's always room for a good story, isn't there? I know. Uh, It's risky. Uh, I feel like... um, Why not? I mean, it's that combo of actors and producers and directors that Mark has placed together. It was something he needed and wanted to do. Um, He's a very clever man. He's very cerebral. And I think the stories that he wants to tell, like Proof, if anyone out there knows about Proof by David Auburn, is a wonderfully intellectual, juicy uh, piece about a mathematician who ends up, uh, he has mental illness and passes away. It's a juicy piece. It sure is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How Um, many times do I want to say juicy on air today? (laughs) What happened to me this morning? (laughs) Why
1: why is it a juicy play?
2: Well, I think with uh, the the
3: landscape that it deals with of mental illness, of, of grief, of four characters at a major turning point in their lives who are forced to face themselves and discover who they really are, flaws and
1: all. Invoking grief on stage, uh, what kind of challenge does that present both directorially and then also for the cast?
3: Mm. Well, I think that all of us have uh, at some stage in our lives dealt with loss. Um, and it is, um, I, I, I would say it's, it, it can be difficult, but it is uh, a journey to open your heart connect with that it it requires bravery and courage and an incredible cast which we do have um, who believe in the story and who I think believe that this will connect with a wider audience
1: and do you as a director do you have to step in at points and just say no pull the the emotion back a little bit it's getting too kind of uh, too melodramatic for example
3: Um, yeah melodrama is something really interesting I I definitely wanted to stay away from any sentimentalisation of this play Uh, I think it has a brutality to it, um, mixed with humour and and I think what happens around the death of someone. Um, But pulling back the emotion I don't think has been a problem with this cast. I think they've been able to temper it very beautifully and um, allow it to bubble up and spill over when it needs to happen and then to ground down and fight for what they believe in. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I mean, uh, I've just come off the back of a tour of Bad Jews, which we're also still touring. We're going to Brisbane and Perth next. And how do you reproduce that work eight shows a week? It is difficult. Uh, that's when you become an athlete. And some shows are a little different, and that's okay. I, I think it's always dangerous to say I have to reach here. Uh, of course, if it says you have to cry, ah, you have to. <laughs> um, but where and how you get there is okay and emily has made a safe environment that we don't have to feel we have to get anywhere as long as it's in the given circumstances and we're telling the truth which this cast is really beautifully doing
1: talk to us about the the challenges of embodying emotion on stage if a script specifies that you have to cry for example Mm. how do you make yourself cry on stage
2: oh goodness uh when you get older i'm 35 now it's really easy (laughs) Life. I mean, <laughs> Julianne Moore, beautiful actress, said uh, famously, you, "You know, you have a well when you just you just you're living." I mean, I have so many things, uh, joyous things that make me cry as well. It doesn't have to be the death of a friend or family member, but um, there's a lot to pull from, which is gorgeous. If you stay open, vulnerable to life, which is what our job is as an actor, is to stay open as a human being and vulnerable, which is difficult some days. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that. Um
3: you you never go for the emotion. The emotion is a byproduct of no. being
2: in action. Cuz it runs away from you, Richard. Yeah. Like literally if you say you must cry now, it goes, "Oh yeah? Is that right? I'm going to laugh instead, Anna." <laughs> it's hideous. You can't will it or want it. it. You have to do the work to prep for it and it will come. But to say, "Do it now." Ooh. Yeah, dangerous. it's a huge game of trust, really. But
3: I but I really think if you're going for what you want and you're on your cues you're always very very surprised with what comes out and then it can be this this fluid thing that can be one night it'll come out in a certain area and another night it will be somewhere else and always in the truth and in the story.
1: Now, if we're talking about the story, let's talk about the story of Proof uh, in a little more detail. It's um, uh, an ac- critically acclaimed play and also an uh, award-winning play, Pulitzer and Tony Award. It's also been, I think, adapted as a film as well. Is that yes. yeah. So is there a risk of staging a work that may be too familiar to audiences because they have either heard about it, they've seen the film, uh, they may have seen a, a production of the play in the US if, if they've travelled, for example. Is there a risk that people will go, oh, we kind of already know what it's like. There's been a a definitive production, for example, with um, uh, Anthony Hopkins, Jake Gyllenhaal and and, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And and Rachel Griffiths did it with MTC. I can't remember how many years ago. Um, 2002M. Yeah. Thank you, Anna. (laughs) Um, Yeah. A wonderful production, but I think um, with writing this good, it stands the test of time. Um, I never get sick of a Tennessee Williams play or Eugene O'Neill, and I think that proof really fits into that category. It's, It's a wonderful, beautifully written play.
1: Now, it's a play about, uh, as we've intimated, about grief, about family, about loss. Um, why are those themes still so resonant? Because they, uh, I mean, I can't, I, think, I can't remember who once said that there's really only six stories to tell or seven <laughs> stories to tell on stage, but certainly yeah. kind of uh, the relationship between a father and a daughter and loss and grief are, are pretty iconic and archetypal kind yes. of dramatic tropes to put on stage. Are they, um, do they still have the impact that they need to, given that they are such well known and well trod themes?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, in the last show that I did, you know, I just never forget this woman who stomped down the aisle and said, I don't know if I like it. It reminds me just of my family. And walked out in such a rage because we all have a family. We all have that family member that just gets under our skin. I have two sisters, and I play, obviously, a sister to the lead role in the show. And, ah, oh, when you say that word she is my sister it brings up this well of emotion and experience and everyone whether they have a sister or or a friend that's like a sister it's just it's it's eternal I don't think it'll ever get old as and grief as well uh it doesn't mean you have to have lost your father you might not have a father it's just something that it's a I don't know a language we all understand and it will never get old thank goodness because we wouldn't have jobs and no one would want to watch movies or go to the theater people come to the theater to see themselves and i think everyone will see themselves in one of these characters there's only four but they'll see something
3: definitely Mm. yeah it's universal themes and i think they'll go on till the end of time
1: the, certainly, the the notion of sibling drama and oh. sibling dynamics, and kind of the minute you started talking about sister, I was think, thinking about my sister, who I love dearly, but also of at course. times where, where we've just butted heads <laughs> so badly. For example, having a kind of like a um, a flaming row on the morning of my father's funeral, which is just kind of like exactly that's, that's a play oh. in itself right there. On right. my
2: sister's wedding day! She turned into, and she is not a bridezilla, and she and I just locked heads. I was trying to do my makeup, and she was telling me off for being. Paul, what? <laughs> I hope she's not listening. Hi, Sky. Because um, she's tiny, but it was just hilarious. But it wasn't at the time. Jeeva's gloves were off, but it's all out of love.
1: And so, how does the playwright David Auburn, who's written Proof, how? What is his skill that he's been able to articulate and capture these kind of dynamics? Uh, in print and in a script for the stage. What is it about his writing in particular that has resonated with the the two of you?
2: As an actor it just feels like what you want to say. It's so natural. I hate the word naturalism because it sounds like there's not a lot of work that's gone into it but I mean I think like any writer he has gone over and over each word, each comma the punctuation is brilliant Mm. there is never a moment where I feel that is not what Claire wants to say. He's he's quite brilliant and I did hear a rumour that the last Line of the play, which I won't give away. Dun dun dun. He spent weeks on on yeah. whether that was the right word. Writers are geniuses and therefore also quite manic in their ways. But one word for two weeks, but it's a good word. Uh,
1: genius <laughs> and madness are, are very appropriate things yeah. for writers, but also very much at the heart of this play.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely.
3: And uh, and I think the fear of that, and and also I think about. It is about the daughter's journey to find out how much of, of her father's genius and madness she may have inherited. And I think that in some way we all want to be in some way like our parents. And then there are traits of our parents that we also probably don't want to bar of yeah. and, and are a bit frightened of. And if one of those things is mental illness, then that can be a very, very frightening proposition. Um, yeah, and, and it brings up a lot. But going back to the sisters with this relationship and the themes and the ideas of this play, because he's set it around the death of a father, the, it, it unearths what these sisters really need to say to each other. This is the only time that I think they've, they've as you say, the gloves are off, mm. that they can really express uh, what's been going on for them in the last five years. Mm.
1: It sounds like it's going to be a hell of a ride both oh, for, yeah. for, for the four of you on stage. And
2: it's opening night tonight. It's so crazy. Yeah. It's, um, we're at the Alex theater, which is a, a sort of a relatively new theater. We opened Bad Jews there last year and it's a really beautiful space. It's an old cinema. Yeah. So the George an cinemas East, and, and St. Kilda. yeah, it's so cozy. It's like a big warm hug of a theater. Cause like <laughs> movies, cinemas, they make you feel like have a chalk top and uh, have a Coke, but please don't eat them as loudly as you would in a cinema. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a beautiful little space and it's a gorgeous space for Proof because it does need to feel like you are at our, in our home and I yeah. think it does.
1: Yeah. So if you would like to get along and see Proof, it's running from tonight through until the 19th of June at the Alex Theatre in St Kilda. Uh, if you jump online, uh, you can go to uh, alextheatresk.com is the, uh, the website for the theatre uh, to book for Artifact Theatre Company's production of the Pulitzer Prize-winning play proof, uh, as I said, on from tonight until the 19th of June com uh, and booking through Ticketek, but just go to that website or to find out more about the company, go to artifacttheatre.com Com. I've been chatting with Emily O'Brien Brown, the director of Proof, and actor Anna Burgess. Thank you both for joining us here at Triple R. Thank,
3: Thank you. you so much.
1: And we're going to talk a new exhibition now, which is on at the Coori Heritage Trust in Federation Square. Uh, it's been showing for a little while, but it's on now until the seventeenth of July. It's called Close to You: The Lisa Belair Picture Show, uh, and is an exhibition that pays tribute to the life and work of the uh, late activist, artist, broadcaster, dramatist uh, and all-round remarkable human being Lisa Belair. Joining us in the studio to tell us a little bit more co-curator Kim Kruger. Welcome to Triple R.
4: Thank you, Richard.
1: So... From the the perspective of somebody who is obviously a little bit more familiar with Lisa Belair's work than I am, why was she such a significant figure and why hold this exhibition to mark the 10th anniversary of her passing?
4: Well, Lisa was very significant to me because she was my cousin, um, but she was very well known in the Melbourne Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community as a community activist. um, And... Part of her activism was being a community photographer and broadcaster. So she was really... uh, She was a trained social worker, so um, a member of the Stolen Generations, which led her to become a social worker. Um, And her kind of philosophy in life was to really lift up the voices of the unheard through her radio. And also the photography was very much about... um, showing our community, the Aboriginal community, um, because we weren't represented in the mainstream. So everywhere she went, every protest, every meeting, every gig, every play, everywhere, she took her camera and took photos of people um, and then gave them back to the people that were in the photos. So, that again, that was very much about a philosophy about photography is that lots of Aboriginal people have been photographed, you know, since photography landed on this shore... Um, but often, without consent or um you know told about the purpose or the use of the photographs um and often um, unidentified in the photographs when you see photo- you know pictures in museums of Aboriginal people, you don't know who they are, you don't know where they where they are, what land they're on, so the act of giving those photos back for Lisa was um a really political one too.
1: Now, amongst other things, she was also a playwright. She wrote The Dirty Mile, which is the the play about Aboriginal life in Fitzroy along Gertrude Street as well. So clearly documentation of history, documentation of people and her community was a really significant part of her life. How rare was it to see her without her camera (laughs) when she was out and about?
4: (laughs) Well, sometimes, I mean, you know, she passed away 10 years ago. So before people all over Facebook and things like that. So she was pretty much had a camera or a a morant, some kind of radio recorder with her everywhere she went. So this is before camera phones and, um, you know, the prolific proliferation of um technology today so pretty much everywhere but she was quite you know um things would go wrong for her too so often she'd turn up with a camera but the lens would be broke you know broken or something would happen or she wouldn't have film but lots of times she did so um or she'd have be with there with her photos so she'd have envelopes you know, stuffed in her bag waiting for to turn up. If she had a photo of you, Richard, she'd be carrying around a photo of you until she saw you again if she didn't have your address to post it to you. So um, if it wasn't the camera, she had photos with her to give to you.
1: Now, the exhibition itself, it must have been something of a challenge then to curate uh, a selection of her work given the vast volumes of photographs and negatives you'd have to work with.
4: Yeah, so Lisa passed away and... Um, 2006 and there's uh, her collection was donated to the Cory Heritage Trust because they, they collect um, um, materials from South East Australia and there's over 20,000 items in the collection So yes, it was a massive task. So there's three curators: uh, Destiny Deacon, artist Destiny Deacon, and Virginia Fraser, and myself. And Virginia Fraser actually did a lot of the work, actually going through the boxes because most of it was uncatalogued. All the all the photos that were. um, Donated to the Koori Heritage Trust. Um, and she spent months going through them just to find, you know, to kind of weed out the pictures of vomit or whatever Because <laughs> <else. laughs> Lisa had some pretty quirky um, interests as well. Um, and, yeah, just going through those 20,000 to narrow it down to you know what we could fit into the gallery so there's about 500 works in the in the exhibition plus some some installation.
1: So 500 works which clearly are uh, both politically important and personally important as well uh, and which document a community over a, a significant period of time.
4: Well yeah if you think about that idea of Lisa's that you know Aboriginal people are kind of Im- invisible, or you know, that many people th- see that we're invisible, or that our community life isn't celebrated unless it's, you know, they all the kind of mainstream ideas of, um, you know, disadvantage and the Aboriginal problem sort of thing but her pictures are about community events um, and protests as well so so the kind of themes that um, revealed themselves through going through the collection were NAIDOC week which was her favourite time of year because it's when you know we're either always in protest but NAIDOC's a time to celebrate so there's quite a big lot of NAIDOC week stuff. Um, Camp Sovereignty which was a a very significant protest. In 2006 uh, there was lots and lots of pictures that's and again where Lisa was in her element because it was about Aboriginal people being self-determining talking about um, being sovereign people which is very you know um, a contemporary discussion today when people are talking about treaty with the state government of victoria so you know t- things that were of interest to her 10 years ago are still being discussed today um so camp sovereignty was a m- very big deal it kind of harked back to the other issues that she was really interested in and the protests that she got involved with like the um brisbane commonwealth games and like the 1988 bicentenary um you know massive walk for aboriginal people so those sorts of things come out and also things like just people, community, people at parties, people at music gigs, people at plays, um, all those sorts of things.
1: There's uh, If people go to the Federation Square website, which is fedsquare.com, there's kind of a really both poignant and playful image that's been chosen as, I think, the hero image to to illustrate the exhibition, which is of uh, uh, an Aboriginal man and a police officer in uniform walking yeah. hand in hand, because there's a, a real be- kind of poignant symbolism to that image.
4: Yeah, that's a picture from Camp Sovereignty um, back in 2006. So Camp Sovereignty was a protest held at the com- time of the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. And yeah, the picture is of an Aboriginal man and a holding the hands of hand of a policeman and Lisa was also very interested in police and the relationship with the Aboriginal community as well um, but that particular picture you kind of don't know quite what's going on like is that a friendly thing is it not friendly is one being led um, but the the kind of background to that is the the Aboriginal man was the keeper of the sacred fire and um uh, through the um, days of the camp, there was a lot, quite a there was some animosity, especially at the end of the camp when the police moved, tried to move the people on. But there was also some kind of interaction, and that particular moment, the keeper of the sacred fire was actually taking the, that policeman through a kind of ceremony, so um, educating that policeman, and the policeman was, um, you know, accepting that. So it was an interesting moment.
1: And I think for um, people who are attending the exhibition, not only to have that moment documented, and as you say, to, to, that Lisa documented political protests and uh, the, the whole idea of the personal being political, the fact that there are personal and intimate photos in there as well, people just members of the community to document um, a side of Melbourne, a side of life, a side of Australian life, that for someone like me as a privileged white fella that we don't necessarily see or think about as well. So it's a, it's a real opportunity. Opportunity to open up a history and to uh, display a community and' a, a face of a community that is the, the mainstream media certainly don't normally pick up on
4: yeah definitely it's about you know Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people being sophisticated complex you know people just like everyone else but um, but you know with a very particular position in terms of um, Australian society and history so and there's a couple of public programs that are coming up that are um, you know attached to the exhibition so next week Lisa was also a published poet she had a fantastic um, poetry book called Dreaming in Urban Areas published Um, so part of the exhibition um, shows a bit of that so Destiny Deacon's um, artwork was the inspiration for the title of of that Poetry book. And so there's going to be a poetry reading next week um, at Fed Square, the, what's it called, The Light in Winter. um, They have a campfire. In Fed Square. So, um, the wonderful actor Pauline Wyman is going to read some of Lisa's poetry and other poets because Lisa loved her mad poets, and who doesn't need a little po- bit of poetry in their lives? Um, so, other poets reading are Tony Birch, Yelchi, Fenoy, Artie Tibby, Kamara Bell and Jean Taylor. That's next Wednesday, the 15th of June. We're also going to do, for a curator's talk, we didn't want to do a dry old walk around, you know, with a couple of, I don't know, how they're dry. So we're yeah. going to do a radio show in the um, in the space. So um, Lisa was a um, broadcaster for 20 years with 3CR and a show called Not Another Kuri Show, because apparently that's what somebody said when they said they wanted to do a Kuri <laughs> show. So um, uh, yeah, so we're going to do a, a, a live broadcast from the gallery on Sunday 26th of June. And then during the school holidays for the kiddies, there's a... Um, a great artist called Erika Walu, who is going to run a banner making workshop um, called "Weapon of Choice" banner making inspired by Lisa Belair. And Erika is a sovereign multimedia experimentalist and activator. And they'll look at banners that Lisa has taken pictures of to create, um, yeah, new banners for the NADOC March. So, and anyone can go along and book for that, Fantastic. like all white. Yeah. Or Brindle.
1: So, uh, if you want more info about the exhibition close to you, the Lisa Belair Picture Show, uh, you can go to the Curry Heritage Trust website, which is Uh The trust is located at level one in the Yarra building of Federation Square. The exhibition is free and is on daily until the 17th of July.
4: Can and I that- say one more thing? You Sorry. Can. There's an awesome catalogue that's been written as part of the show and we really encourage people to buy it because that will help maintain Lisa's photo collection. There's a lot of interest in using the photos for documentaries and other exhibitions and so on Um, but it's mostly uncatalogued so helping buying the catalog which has got great articles by Brenda Croft and Max Delaney and Virginia and Destiny and myself um, and some of Lisa's poetry as well it will just help maintain the collection so that it can be seen more in the future.
1: So definitely get in and buy a copy of that catalogue as well. We've been talking to Kim Kruger, one of the co-curators of uh, the exhibition Close to You, the Lisa Belair Picture Show which as I said is on until the 17th of July at the Currie Heritage Trust in Federation Square. Kim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.